This is Fortune's Wheel, the podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is a bonus episode, episode seven, Man Under the Mountain. episode, I'd like to say a thank you to everyone who's tuned in and shared the podcast. We've seen a huge bump in listenership in the last week, and I, I just wanted to say thank you in the only way a podcaster really can, more content. So here, for a little extra credit, is the full-ish story of a man who just keeps popping up everywhere we seem to look so far in the podcast. Some of this will obviously sound familiar, but certainly not all of it. This is the story of a man who, by all accounts, influenced pieces and parts of the North Sea region in a way that is reminiscent of the use of light in a Rembrandt painting. Definitely there, but yet somehow not. This is the story, as best we can pull it together, based on various medieval accounts of a boy violently exiled only to re-emerge as a product of his times. Violent, charismatic, charming, and determined to take what is rightfully his. Oh, and a death that is as shocking as it is premature. This is the life of Olaf Tryggvason. I hope you enjoy the show. All 64 oars were abandoned at this point. There was no point in the ambush in pretending that they were able to escape the smaller longboats around them. Under an iron-gray sky, the sea swelled and shrank in a nauseating dance of wills. There were bodies throughout the legendary Drakkar, the flagship of the king's naval retinue, called the Long Serpent. In fact, this strikingly gigantic Viking longboat was one of the longest of its kind ever built. The 11 other ships in the king's service there had to this point been overtaken, their floorboards under puddles of blood and their crews dumped overboard into the icy Baltic Sea. Standing at the stern of his ship, his men quickly becoming overrun, he defends himself like the champion warrior he was. At 29, His life was that of his entire ancestry. Hundreds of years of warfare and tales of conquering and leading men. After all these years, he knew the end was inching closer. With every every man's chest he pierced with a sword, three more seemed to board his ship. The end was near. On either side of him, bobbing in the frigid waters, were the bodies of enemies and allies, his brothers, every so often one sinking beneath the dark surface. How had he gotten to this point, in a sea battle, in a narrow channel between present-day Sweden and Denmark? See, it all started back in the 940s, long before Olaf Tryggvason was even born. 
long before he narrowly defeated Britnoth at Malden, long before his sponsorship by King Ethelred II, or the fateful chess game in Trondheim with the merchant Leif Erikson, or even the ambush on the waves of the Baltic Sea. In Norway in the 940s, Eric Bloodaxe had risen to power. His surname should give you an idea of his style of leadership, and around 946, after he killed most of his brothers, i.e. rivals to the throne, his people desperately appealed for a savior, a new king to rule them. Their appeals made their way to one of the only people left with a viable claim to the throne, Hakan. Hakan the Good, as he would come to be known, was being fostered by King Ethelstan of England for the better part of his young life. But after receiving support of the Jarl of Laid, Sigurd Hakonarsson, he made landfall in Norway with a large contingent of rebels and made way for Viken, Eric's seat of power. See, Eric lost the support of those around him pretty quickly. Again, he wasn't exactly well-loved to begin with, so Eric escaped into exile to the Orkney Islands, where he raised a band of pirates. After taking York in England in 948, he returned there in much the same way and was finally defeated, for good this time, at Stainmore in 954. Well, this created a power vacuum of a sort that would take some time to sort out, but would have lasting implications stretching past the turn of the millennium. Hakan had just assumed the crown of King of Norway in 955, but he was far more English as he was Norwegian, as he was sent to King Ethelstan as an assurance for peace between the two kingdoms when he was still a baby. So you can imagine that beginning your reign with support would have proven difficult, especially being a Christian. Norwegians never had a missionary visit to this point, but due to the Irish and English slaves that numbered the countryside and the accounts of Norwegian merchants to, to Ireland and England and mainland Europe, well, see, these would have, had most, uh, would have made most Norwegians pretty well aware of Christianity. Hakan was raised in the English court and was therefore Christian. Norway still worshipped their Norse pantheon, so you can see how this might rub some people the wrong way when Hakan tries to implement Christian policies across the kingdom. His two most powerful supporters were his nephews, King Gudrid Bjornsson of Vestfold and King Tryggvi Olafsson of Ostfold. Even their support shook when Hakan invited missionaries from England, but the straw that broke the camel's back for his people was at the Frostthing, a meeting of local chieftains and kings to discuss matters of warfare and commercial relationships, alliances, territorial disputes and policies, things like that. See, Hakan made it official that Christianity was no longer an option. Many of the upper echelon of Norwegian society had already converted, but the regular, everyday Norwegian was devoutly pagan, and they wouldn't stand for it. Bonders which were the name for tenant farmers, were genuinely afraid because they relied on their annual sacrifices to the god Freyr, the fertility goddess, for success in the fields. So they instantly rebelled. And according to John Haywood's book, Northmen, I quote, Most chieftains also opposed Christianity, partly at least, because they feared a loss of status and authority. The Norse pagan religion had no priesthood 
and it was the chieftains who conducted the sacrificial rituals. End quote. Nothing Hakan could do in terms of compromise would suffice, and Bonders began calling for new leadership. This created a political crisis throughout the kingdom. Eric's three sons, Sigurd, Gamli, and Harald, appealed to Denmark, led by King Harald Bluetooth, and a new challenge faced Hakan. Sadly, after proving himself to be an effective general on the battlefield, earning many decisive wins, Hakan died of a loss of blood from an arrow wound to the arm. Harold Greycloak, one of Hakan's nephews, took the throne. Harold had been baptized already in England years earlier and took a different approach to Christianizing Norway than his uncle. Anyone disagreeing with Christianity and conversion would meet the end of a sword. Period. Meanwhile, Gudrid Bjornsson and Tryggvi Olafsson had converted under Hakan and were gaining in popularity during Hakan's battles against Harold Greycloak. Well, Harold wasted no time in 962 by eliminating them as they were very real potential threats for the throne of Norway. In the meantime, another contender to the throne, Hakan Sigurdsson, found himself escaping to Denmark, much like Harold Greycloak and his brothers had done years earlier, and he formed a plan to take the throne from Harold with the support of another Harold, Harold Bluetooth. See, if you're paying close enough attention here, you're probably asking yourself why Harold Bluetooth would support Harold Greycloak's power grab years earlier, only to support Hakan Sigurdsson's power grab this time. Well, it's actually simple. Harold Bluetooth, a Christian already, felt a heavier approach to Christianization was needed in Norway, and Hakan the Good simply wasn't making the headway he thought should have been made. Now that his co-conspirator, Harold Greycloak, was offering this heavier hand and many in Norway had already converted, this new co-conspirator, Hakan Sigurdsson, was willing to give him part of Norway. Well, long story short, Harold Bluetooth used a little trickery by offering to host Harold Greycloak and discuss an expansion of his territory outside Norway. Maybe a peace deal involving Danish lands? The moment Harold Greycloak landed, the Danes ambushed and slaughtered his retinue. Hakan Sigurdsson became king of northern Norway. Harold Bluetooth took the rest, except for Harold Grensky, son of Gudrid Bjornsson, who was murdered years earlier by Harold Greycloak. Harold Grensky took Vestfold and the surrounding area. But after being forced to Christianize during the negotiation process in Denmark after the rebellion, Hakan Sigurdsson escaped and ravaged the Danish coasts in retaliation on his way back home. See, Hakan Sigurdsson couldn't give a rip about Christianity. He was determined to hold strong to his ancestral beliefs and, seems how Harold Bluetooth was currently embroiled in an invasion by Otto II's Holy Roman Empire, he made a clean path back home, where he took all of Norway back as his own. We're going to put Hakan Sigurdsson's increasingly oppressive reign on hold until 995, while we pick up with the subject of this episode. So, years earlier, after their king Trygvi was murdered unjustly, the people of Ostfold were left scrambling. The bonders didn't have anywhere to go, so they were forced to remain and continue to farm the land. 
But the merchants and the royal family, they scattered in the wind. One mother and her son made their way to the Orkney Islands. But by 965, when the boy was maybe four or five years old, the two were sailing to Russia to begin a new life in exile. Only for Estonian pirates seized their vessel. The boy was split from his mother, whom, as far as we know, he never saw again. The boy was sold into slavery to a man named Clerken, who then accepted a new cloak in exchange for him. Kind of gives you an idea of the value of human life at the time. This new family was, was kind, and they raised this boy fairly comfortably, though, again, he was still a slave. When he was eight years old, this boy was found in one of the Rus towns near the Baltic Sea, shockingly, by his cousin. Sigurd bought the boy, and just before he took him away, the boy escaped, ran off to do one last thing before he left town. He found that slave dealer, Clerken, and he sharpened his axe on the man's skull. There's no question that young boy, named Olaf, had seen luxury but certainly not in the last three or four years, and certainly nothing like what he must have seen when he got to Novgorod with his cousin, Sigurd, the man who saved him from a certain mundane fate. Novgorod was the new-ish capital of Rus at the time, and the Rus were descendants of Vikings who first navigated from the Baltic Sea down the Volga River, only to marvel at the absolute splendor at Constantinople some 300 years earlier or so. Over the centuries, these people established themselves as a regional power in a really difficult part of the Eurasian plains and steppes, and they benefited greatly from their trade connections with Constantinople as well. And recently, Vladimir, their leader, had moved the Rus capital from Kiev to Novgorod, and he introduced Christianity, specifically the Byzantine version of Christianity, as opposed to the Roman version, to a staunchly pagan people, mind you. Olaf was already baptized, but he had most likely just lived with traditional Norse ways for the last few years, but there's no indication that he struggled with settling in. He seemed to have grown into a, into a physically capable and, and mentally acute teenager, because King Vladimir accepted him into his elite Drujina, which were his personal bodyguards. One saga tells of Olaf becoming such a tremendous leader of men within the Drujina, which is always a problem because every leader knows that if you can lead warriors, you are a threat to the power structure. He became such a problem to Vladimir that Vladimir all but kicked him out. Other sources just say that Olaf left to make a name for himself elsewhere when he was 18. Either way, Olaf was no longer in Vladimir's court in Novgorod. Things were very different a thousand years ago. Today, we can't fathom a young teenage boy leading a band of older warriors. However, back then, it was all too common, especially if the boy had proven himself on the battlefield already and or had royal blood. Olaf raised a small army of Vikings under his royal banner around the year 980 and sailed back toward home. Now, he knew he couldn't take Norway, or at the very least, Ostfold, back without, without more men and more wealth. So he busied himself with countless raids on coastal towns and ports, from the Baltic Sea through to the North Sea into the Atlantic, 
I mean, this guy was everywhere. As Olaf made his way out of the Baltic Sea, he stopped in Wendland. Wendland was a small kingdom of Germanic, Scandinavian, and Slavic people, pagan by their belief system, in the northern present-day uh, Germany and Poland, pretty much. And Olaf was blown there by a terrible Baltic storm. And so after settling, it, settling a land dispute throughout a more violent approach to negotiations, that is, he earned the right to marry the princess. Her name was Guida. He fought alongside his Windish countrymen and their allies in Otto II's Holy Roman Empire. Well, they were fighting against the Danes, led by Harold Bluetooth. This was about the time, if you remember, that Harold Bluetooth couldn't retaliate against Hakan Sigurdsson's escape and subsequent raids on the Danish coastlines. Well, it's because it's because Harold Bluetooth was stuck fighting uh, against Otto II and subsequently Olaf. So Olaf enjoyed great success in his short time as Prince of the Wends, earning both wealth and fame, not to mention followers. And by the sources, Olaf also enjoyed his marriage with the beautiful and intelligent wife, Guida. But unfortunately, nothing lasts forever in this life, and, and Guida fell ill and she died in the late 980s. With nothing left in Wendland, Olaf peacefully just packed up and left. It was during this time in, in Wendland, though, that we hear word of his iconic longboat, the Long Serpent, with 64 oars who could carry almost double the men, was first constructed. He would only abandon that beloved ship one time, but it won't be for several years still. He made his way westward, as Norwegian Vikings were known to do, and he found himself a few years later, around 989, raiding the coasts of Ireland. Now, we know already about his marriage in Dublin, where he collected further notoriety through royal kinship as well as a swelling of his wealth, but that also didn't last, and I doubt it was even meant to last. By this time, this young man of maybe 20 or 21 years had his vision firmly planted in his mind, and he wouldn't stop until he achieved it. Olaf took his warband of at least 90 longboats and upwards of 4,000 men and left Dublin forever. His fate wasn't in Ireland, and his fate wasn't in Wendland or Novgorod. His fate was home, but not quite yet still. He was close, but not quite ready to make his move. Sailing east, he made port in Normandy. Sound familiar? And then shortly afterward, he moved out northward toward the southern coast of England called Kent, specifically a small but important port town named Folkestone. He raised it to the ground and he pillaged his way around the southeastern corner of the island, only to come to rest on a tiny island outside of Malden in Essex. It's worth noting here that despite marrying into two minor royal families in two different areas of Europe, as well as being a part of the royal court of Novgorod, a tiny one, sure, but he most likely at the very least had the attention of the king history would come to call Vladimir the Great. See, Olaf, when he first set out at the age of 18 with his war band, he referred to himself as King Olaf 
and so did his men. After more than a decade of violent reputation and wealth building, Olaf would make his mark on history there in Malden. He would force the hand through his narrow victory against its highly respected elderman, Britnoth, of King Ethelred II to pay for peace. This was certainly not Olaf's sole intention when he set out from Normandy or when he was fighting at Malden, but as we've seen very clearly so far in England's history, between the years 991 and 1014, that Olaf's Danegeld payment opened the floodgates of Viking invasions seeking the same from this very productive and wealthy island kingdom. It was Olaf, with his entirely ulterior motives, that could receive the credit for Saxon England's eventual collapse. It's certainly impossible to make such a claim with absolute conviction, but it would be foolish to leave out Olaf in the grand scheme of England's tumultuous 11th century. So after Olaf makes tectonic waves throughout North Sea politics, he leaves. But he doesn't make his move on Norway quite yet either. We don't know exactly where he goes to. Maybe back to Dublin for a spell. Maybe to Wendland for a visit. Maybe secretly scouting out Ostfold in the surrounding areas. But he appears in London in 994 at the side of Swain Forkbeard, the Danish king raiding the growing and wealthy city along the River Thames. Yes, London. The raid, according to the saga of Olaf Tryggvason, was a complete failure. But there is a treaty signed afterward by King Ethelred, the man he just extorted for a massive sum three years earlier, and Olaf Tryggvason. As part of the peace talks, he takes a vow to uphold Christian values going forward. Bishop Alfea, a man who would, as we know, meet his tragic end over a decade later in the custody of another Viking warrior. See, Bishop Alfea oversaw the ceremony and officially baptized Olaf, which also put Ethelred in a position of ecclesiastical authority over Olaf, as Ethelred became his sponsor in the larger European Christian community. This, to me, is a clear sign that Olaf is simply putting the last few chess pieces in place before he makes his ultimate move to restore his family's seat of power in Norway. Through baptism at the hands of an English bishop, being witnessed by a recognized Christian king, Olaf, in one fell swoop, legitimizes his claim to Norway's crown. A lot's happened in the years between Olaf leaving Wendland and Olaf placing his last pawn in place. After all that time, after all that effort in raising support and gathering wealth and, and, you know, making those connections, by the time Olaf uh, approached Norway in 995, Hakan Sigurdsson was so hated and loathed by his countrymen that Olaf, son of Trygvi, was welcomed with open arms and was all but handed the crown. Now, King Olaf worked tirelessly spreading Christianization around his new kingdom. But after years of being a slave and being a king's elite bodyguard and and being a Viking raider, well, Olaf wasn't exactly a kind man at this point, or a patient one. He'd been briefed on Norway's progress and conversion under Hakan the Good and, and Harold Greycloak, and mostly just probably thought, man, this is ridiculous. Enough is enough. Norway will be Christian, and that's that. 
And uh, that was indeed that. He began in Viken, and by 997 he Christianized, violently or peacefully, pretty much all of coastal Norway. As winter approached, he plotted how to head north and inland. Well, these areas would be rather tricky, as the farther inland you went, the further the inhabitants were from the more diverse merchants in the port cities and towns and villages. The ancient Norse beliefs were still firmly in place in the more mountainous regions, and it would be Olaf's toughest challenge. In fact, it would be a challenge he wouldn't actually overcome. And it definitely didn't help that he burned down a Norse temple in Laid, and the locals, as far as Trondelag, rose in opposition to him. Olaf retreated back to Viken for the rest of the winter, and he plotted. To quote Haywood again from his book Northmen, quote, At first Olaf adopted a conciliatory approach, offering to learn about pagan customs, but this was only to lull his opponents into a false sense of security. At the district thing, Olaf and his men killed the leader of the pagan faction, Jarn Skeggi, in the temple of Thor. Though the pagans had come well armed, the loss of their leader broke their resistance, and they tamely agreed to baptism. End quote. So let's stop and ask ourselves a really important question here. Why was it so important that Norway converted to Christianity? It's a crucial one, and it's a question we will see pop up throughout the early parts of this podcast in that the question of religious control over secular matters is one that kings and, and bishops and popes and knights will wrestle with constantly. For Olaf's purposes in this episode, I'll try to keep this explanation to a minimum, as I promise this won't be the last time we talk about Christianization. It plays an integral role as nations begin to take shape and power structures are poured like concrete foundations of modern Europe. Olaf knew Christianity through the eyes of other kingdoms. I mean, really, his whole life. We can assume that he was born into the Norse pantheon, but by the time he was rescued by fate and dropped in the lap of King Vladimir in Novgorod, a Rus kingdom who recently converted to Christianity, mind you, Olaf was at least exposed to its traditions and rituals and teachings, no doubt. Whether he officially converted or not is up for debate, but I don't happen to think he did. I think that because he went on to marry into a Germanic pagan Wendland royal house almost immediately after leaving Novgorod. But I also don't for a minute think that he ever forgot the lessons taught in Novgorod. There was a firm structure in place in Europe, and Olaf most likely saw the benefits of converting to Christianity. The first and arguably most important benefit had nothing to do with one's soul's imminent fate. The story of how King Vladimir of Novgorod converted is, of course, more mere legend, and in every legend, though, there is a vein of truth that throbs. It is said that Vladimir of the Rus people knew that plugging him and his people into the larger power structures would yield massive benefits in terms of access to trade and alliances. So he invited an emissary of each major religion to his court to do their best to persuade him of their people's choice of faith. Now, again, some of this is legend, but some is also fact. Take from it what you will, but it goes something like this. The first emissary was from the Judaic Khazars from the Central Asian steppes. Now, due to a lack of bacon, they joke, Vladimir turned up his nose. Honestly, I 
can't really blame him there. But it was the fact that when he asked where the center of Jewish power currently resided, the emissary said Jerusalem. When Vladimir questioned who was in charge of Jerusalem, the emissary explained that the Jewish people had lost control of the city. So Vladimir dismissed him, discounting the influence of a religion uh, that could possibly have had lost its own holy city. The second emissary was Muslim, and Vladimir simply couldn't stomach the idea of no alcohol and other restrictions and interruptions to everyday life. But he was very impressed with the tales of Baghdad being a center for learning and worship and the expansive territories that the caliphates possessed from Cordoba in present-day Spain to western India by way of northern Africa's Mediterranean coast, including the holy city of Jerusalem. So it was then between Catholic Christianity in the West and Orthodox Greek Christianity in the East. Catholic Christianity being most of Europe and Orthodox Greek Christianity being lands conquered by the Eastern Roman Empire, which, as you know, centered in Constantinople. The West in the late 900s still had the reputation that accompanied the Dark Ages, a place in disarray and largely unorganized and warlike. Rome having fallen, no city could come remotely close to rivaling its legendary splendor. However, tales of Constantinople dazzled Vladimir with visions of buildings that reached into the clouds and streets that shimmered from the gold decorating everything. Constantinople was a place that Vladimir wanted to be connected to, especially since the trade network they shared with Constantinople was already established and very lucrative. The point of this semi-legend of the Rus' conversion to Orthodox Greek Christianity is to accentuate the idea that conversions rarely happened out of personal conviction. Conversions in the Middle Ages happened out of political and economic convenience and benefit. Like Vladimir the Great in Novgorod, Olaf knew the political and economic networking that could arise from aligning his Norway with potential allies on the mainland, like the Holy Roman Empire, the Normans, and maybe, just maybe, the Danes. Okay, maybe. Olaf had learned a lot in his two decades away from home, having been exiled under threat of death at five, to being a personal slave until the age of eight, and from the brutality of the Rus king's personal guard to his highly successful life of piracy in the North Sea areas. He now found himself experienced in the ways of Christian and pagan courts with a choice as to how best to grow his new nation. The choices he made led him to seek a place in the overall power structure of Western European politics, and seems how the Catholic Christianity of Rome held more sway in Western Europe than did Orthodox Greek Christianity in Constantinople. Well, obviously, I mean, he chose the Roman flavor of Christianity. Knowing Trondelag and the towns that surrounded it in the more remote areas of Norway, Olaf knew that resistance to Christianity would not be easy to overcome. So he decided upon a different tack. Olaf simply built churches and monasteries in that area, even constructing a personal home that he could live in to monitor the transition and respond to, more, to problems more quickly than if he were elsewhere. He called this, this new town Kopanjan, which means place to trade, which was a brilliant marketing ploy so that it would grow just a bit quicker. Kopanjan 
today is referred to as Trondheim, and there's a statue of Olaf Tryggvason there as well. Now, I'm not sure if this next move was his most brilliant move, as it nearly ended his life, uh, but it needs to be said here. So, Olaf married the daughter of the guy he just murdered at the thing just a few months earlier, Jarnskegi. Her name was Gudrun, and Gudrun, she was not really that happy with Olaf as on their first night as husband and wife in the eyes of, of the Christian god, she tried to kill him. So, they were sleeping separately, I'm sure, there afterward. Uh, Olaf soon had Norway pretty much converted, though, by the year 1000, and and seems how Norwegians were the main Scandinavian group who continued to move to and inhabit Iceland. Iceland, in 999, also chose to convert as well before violence came their way. Now that the Christianization of Norway was more or less complete, there were still pockets of paganism, but the major cities of trade and influences were certainly subdued. See, Olaf turned his attention to other reforms at this point. He introduced Norway's first effective bureaucracy in the form of governors and tax collectors, as well as consolidated Norwegian money systems through the use of coins modeled after those in circulation in the Holy Roman Empire from Frisia, only with his name on it. You know, this would do two things in my estimation. Number one, coinage and paper money tend to be stand-ins for actual value. So the movement from bartering for specific items and services toward the use of a fiat currency is in play. However, I, I want to be very careful. I don't want to confuse anyone here. Coins a thousand years ago or so actually held the value that it claims to be worth. You know, unlike today in which we just take our leader's words for it, that, that that's indeed what each coin is worth. But the shift away from bartering will eventually lead to fiat currency many centuries later. Either way, in no small part, the coins he introduced upset the trade in and out of Norway. But in the larger scheme of things, it actually connected the rest of Europe by following their practices. Number two, whoever handled these coins would see Olaf's name, thus equating him with the Christian royalty in Europe. See, Olaf Tryggvason, king of Norway, he was legit now. But as anyone in any position of power will readily admit, when you're at the top, you're seen by everyone, and those who are seeing King Olaf I, as he came to be known to his people, were regional monarchs with sights set on expansion and control. Remember what's going on in the North Sea region at this point. The year is 1000. All over the North Sea region, King Ethelred II of England has given up his handful of Danegeld payments to Vikings, such as Swain Forkbeard of Denmark, since Olaf's payment after Malden in 991. England was a plump sheep in a field of starving wolves. Also, Brian of Munster just took Dublin and would be declared High King of Ireland within two years. And in addition to all that, Leif Erikson has begun, had begun to hear whispers of mysterious lands to the west, and so much more we haven't even gotten to yet across Europe uh, is happening around this time. But, but there was a king that we haven't even had a chance to mention yet. Also in Olaf, this man's name was King Olaf Skoltkonung of Sweden. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm so sorry if I'm butchering any of these names here. So yes, we're talking about Sweden. The Swedish haven't really come into play in our story yet because the Scandinavians and Viking raiders that came from Sweden and Gotland 
By the way, Gotland is a, uh, is a pretty large island off of Sweden's eastern coast. So for the most part, they haven't come into play here because they traveled and explored and set up trade networks to the east into the Baltic along the coastlines of present-day Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. From there, they jumped on the intricate and vast river system heading southward, a major river of them being the Volga, and set up towns and overtook Slavic communities throughout the area. Spoiler alert, these areas would have these Scandinavians turn into the people we call the Rus, who Olaf Tryggvason would serve as a bodyguard to their leader. You know, I said king before, uh, but Vladimir the Great of Novgorod uh, wasn't essentially a king. I mean, he was really called the Grand Prince, but we will get to him later. I think some of us will be humorously surprised at how many times we stop and see just how connected the people of the Middle Ages really were. I mean, to me, it's fascinating. So back north in Sweden, King Skotkonung had his eyes on some of the young king's land. Swain Forkbeard was willing to hear this Swede out. And do you remember that one guy, that, that former king of Norway, who was run out of town when Olaf showed up in 995? Yeah, well, he's made quite a living out of piracy these last five years or so, and, and we saw what a successful Viking leader can create with enough plunder, success, and, and men. He can create opportunities. Swain Forkbeard had said had just married off his sister, Tyre, to King Olaf I of Norway, connecting the two royal houses. Well, I mean, to clarify, Swain Forkbeard wanted very little to do with this marriage. Tyre actually left her husband in order to marry a Christian king, as she was Christian from birth by her father, Harold Bluetooth, and she wanted her property back. Her property was in Wendland. Yeah. That Wendland, the Wendland that Olaf used to be a member of, the one that he left to become a raider. This was the chance that both King Skotkanung and Eric Hakonarsson was looking for. Wait, er, who? What? What? Eric Hakonarsson? Okay, so way back in 995 when Olaf Tryggvason arrived? Nay was welcomed with open arms by the people of Norway in exchange for their oppressive king. Well, that king escaped. Kinda. He was caught along with his retinue, and it's said that, that disguised in the crowd of onlookers was his son, Eric Hakonarsson, who witnessed firsthand the new king, Olaf I, our king, or our Olaf Tryggvason himself, raise the severed head of his father, to the crowd. So this former king's son, Eric, never forgot that moment watching his father's head being raised to a cheering crowd. And he most certainly felt that the throne still belonged to him as well. Having heard the rumors of the Swedish designs on acquiring Norwegian property, he pounced on the opportunity. They devised a plan to lure Olaf Tryggvason out of Norway and then pounce. It took five years and two marriages. The second one, unfortunately, proved fatal. King Olaf I traveled to Wendland to settle the dispute one way or another. On his way back, Olaf was surprised by the joint forces of Erik Hakonarsson and Olaf Skotkunung 
as he passed through the fairly narrow and definitely choppy channel separating Denmark from Sweden, connecting the Baltic on the east and the North Sea on the west. I have yet to find a better description of Viking sea battles, so I'm, I'm going to once again uh, go to John Haywood from his book Northmen. Haywood writes, The exact course of the battle is not known for certain, but it probably did not involve individual ship-to-ship actions. Viking Age sea battles were usually fought in much the same way as land battles, but with the ships themselves forming the battlefield. The opposing fleets formed up in line, bows on to the other. The largest ships were always stationed in the center. Masts and sails were taken down before the battle to clear the decks for action, and all maneuvering was done under oars alone. The defending fleet, as Olaf's fleet did at Svold, often used the masts and spars to lash its ships together so that they formed a solid fighting platform on which warriors could move quickly from ship to ship where they needed or where they were most needed. The attacking fleet could also do this, but only after it had made contact with the enemy. Tactics were simple. The first step was to fasten on to the enemy ships with grappling hooks and anchors. The second, to board them. Once the deck had been cleared in hand-to-hand fighting, the ship would be cut loose and rowed away. Size was always more important in sea battles than speed and maneuverability. The larger the ship was, the more men it carried, and the taller it was. A high-sided ship offered better protection from missiles for its crew, and it was harder for attackers to board. Its crew could in turn rain missiles down onto the crew of the smaller ship, and they were more easily able to board it. Okay, so now according to Snorri Snorrelson's uh, epic saga of Olaf Tryggvason's life, Heimskringla, he describes Eric Hakonarsson essentially taking his flagship, Iron Beard, from ship to ship, and after killing its men, proceeded to push the empty ship adrift, thinning out Olaf Tryggvason's naval fleet. Snorri said that by the time Eric's iron beard rode up to Olaf's long serpent, which had said that they were fairly close in size, it was, quote, battle axe and sword, end quote, to the end. And here is where we began. Olaf Tryggvason, King Olaf I of Norway, having Christianized his country and brought brought it in line with the larger European political structure and connecting it further through expanded trade networks, having picked himself up from humiliating conditions as a slave to the king of a major European influence in the far north, Olaf stood, I imagine, a battle hacks in one hand and a sword in the other. There's no use of a shield at this point. It was all or nothing. The time to hedge his bets were over. There was no retreat back across the submerged causeway when things looked bleak. He had the typical Viking chainmail armor on. I imagine he probably ripped the helmet off because like the shield, what's the use? But I admit that's all, you know, Hollywood popping up in my mind. As his men fell one by bloody one, as he saw them dumped overboard of his legendary vessel that struck fear in the hearts of all who saw it appear on the horizon over the last almost two decades. Olaf knew he would not see his dream materialize. He dug his heels into the wet wood planks beneath him, 
thinking about where his mother ended up almost 25 years earlier. He raised the battle axe over his head, thinking about that terrifying moment when he was stolen by those Swedish Vikings. He threw the axe at a sprinting enemy, splitting his chest into two, thinking about his training in the court of Vladimir. He ran his sword into another opponent's neck and kicked him aside, thinking about the feeling of running that sword through that awful slave dealer named Clerken years before. And, as Eric Hakonarsson himself came to take his well-earned and long-awaited glory, to strike him down where he stood there on his own ship, Olaf Tryggvason made a choice. Two sons of slain kings. Eric's father killed his father. He, Olaf, killed Eric's father in return many years later. But he would not let Eric get the best of his ancestry. Chainmail and all, Olaf leapt overboard, knowing his fate. If the feeling of freezing ocean water had an image, I imagine it to be something like lightning. Faster than his brain could register, the water stung his nerve endings into submission, and his lungs quickly began taking in water, cutting off the oxygen to the rest of his body. As he convulsed, his vision would blur in such a way that he couldn't quite tell if he was dying or if he was sinking so deep that the light was penetrating less and less. Except for his brief stint as a slave, Olaf had always sought to steer his own life, and, and for the most part he did. He went on to interact with some of the farthest-flung kingdoms in medieval Europe, from the river systems of Eurasia and the wintry mountains of the Arctic, to the court of Ireland's richest ports in the midst of an island-wide power struggle. He wrote his destiny, pagan, Christian. He fit in everywhere, and yet he only had one home, the one he demanded to return to, Norway. King Olaf I was an enigma. He put in motion several small things that would have much larger consequences in the grand scheme of European nation building. But most interestingly, the people of Olaf's Norway, when they heard about his defeat between the Baltic and the North Seas, see, they refused to believe it. Rumors began to circulate around the countryside of Olaf Tryggvason being spotted elsewhere. In fact, a man, Tryggvi Olafsson, made a play on the throne of Norway claiming to be the son of King Olaf I. But before any real notoriety could be accepted, he fell in battle in 1033. In England, they still believed King Arthur to be sleeping in Avalon, awaiting the time when his people would need him most. Just waiting. Many rumors had Olaf traveling south. He was seen in Wendland shortly after his supposed demise. A few years later, Sicily. A few years after that, Antioch. Gifts and letters were reported to have been received by his sister Ingvald, as well as his ally, King Ethelred II. But unfortunately, there's no proof. While others, way back in Norway, believe their king to be sleeping much closer. They say that Olaf Tryggvason, the man who fought his way out from under the oppressive mountain of slavery in order to save his people's souls, they say he's waiting for his time to return as well. His time to move another oppressive mountain, this time off his beloved people of Norway. 
I really hope you enjoyed today's bonus episode. Again, it's nothing more than a thank you for listening and sharing the show each week. Admittedly, I relied heavily on John Haywood's incredible book, Northman, Please Go Buy It, and the actual text, Saga of Olaf Tryggvason. I highly encourage you to read that saga as well. But I also drew from the Heimskringla itself, as well as the brilliant works of Peter Ackroyd and Valerie Hansen. In the end, this brings us only to the year 1000, the year historians believe Olaf Tryggvason leapt to his death at the height of his power. To me, as I was researching all this stuff, I kept seeing his name pop up, like, like everywhere it seemed, and I thought it was too late to go back and fill that part in. But I decided his story was just too important to let go of. He initiated Ethelred's Danegeld, which set England down its fatal path just two or so decades later. He very briefly and temporarily shaped Irish politics in, in some way or another. He belonged to a handful of royal courts from one end of Europe to the other. And he interacted with so many of the same people we've been following on the podcast so far. Thank you all for downloading and listening. We had another huge spike in listenership and new subscriptions this week. So another huge welcome to all our new listeners. On top of having listeners in 10 U.S. states already, we're also being listened to more and more by our brothers and sisters abroad in England, Ireland, Switzerland, as you know. And now we get to welcome listeners from Canada and France as well. I'm determined to grow this show, so I ask that you share the show with those you know. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app or site like Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Spotify, Breaker, and Anchor, among many others. And we're also on Facebook. Search for Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Twitter, at Wheel Podcast. And Instagram, at Fortune underscore Wheel underscore Podcast, all lowercase. You can also email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. I encourage questions, book recommendations, differing perspectives, and even suggestions for topics to cover. Again, really, thank you. So don't forget to check out uh, the other episode we have coming out at our regularly scheduled release date of Monday. We're going to find ourselves back in the midst of some seriously rough times in England, as I already promised you we would. Olaf will have been dead for 14 years by this point, but his actions at Malden, as we've said, are still echoing to this point we will take a look at one of the coolest speeches of the Middle Ages, a speech that will effectively put every Englishman and Englishwoman in his or her place. On the next episode, Lupus rips the Band-Aid and airs out England's long-concealed issues. And I can't wait to tell you about it.